back to past episodes, go to cjsw.com and click on the podcast tab, or go to the CJSW app and use the talk filter when you search. The stakes of this continued support for Israel, the stakes of continuing to whitewash its crimes, Biden risks passing and paying a very high price for this, and the Democratic Party risks paying a very high price for this, because Muslim Americans, Arab Americans, progressive Americans are increasingly making clear every single day that they will not vote for Biden. That's Sarah Lee Whitson, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Sarah Lee Whitson on Gaza, international law, and the Biden presidency. Julia Conley, staff writer for Common Dreams, writes, Along with persistent protests at public events held by President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, Recent polling is continuously demonstrating that the White House's vehement support for Israel's bombardment of Gaza, despite the rising civilian death toll, is not winning them accolades among the voters whose backing they depend on in the upcoming election. Conley cites a recent poll that 50% of 2020 Biden voters believe the Israeli assault that the U.S. has helped fund is a genocide. Young Democrats in particular are highly critical of the administration's policy, thus dimming Biden's re-election hopes. Our guest today is Sarah Lee Whitson. She's executive director of DAWN, Democracy for the Arab World Now. Previously, she was executive director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa division from 2004 to 2020. I talked with Sarah Lee Whitson on February 1st. Welcome to the program. Hi there. Noam Chomsky, in his 1969 book, Peace in the Middle East, wrote, In no other region of the world are the problems so likely to lead to devastating regional conflict and possible global war. I have suggested, Chomsky says, that these problems have only been aggravated by the irrationality and intolerance that has dominated discussion in the United States. It will be most unfortunate, he says, if this state of affairs persists. Well, here we are 54 years later. Does what Chomsky warned against, U.S. irrationality and intolerance, persist? What, if anything, has changed? Well, I would say that what Chomsky feared has come to fruition in spades, probably well beyond um, what he envisioned. You know, to suggest, as he does, that U.S. policy in the Middle East is irrational uh, certainly is is correct in that it, it doesn't make sense from an objective evaluation of America's interests versus a review of the policies. You would say that the policies are irrational because they have no rational connection to actual American interests. However, 
I think that since Chomsky's coat, there is a much more deliberately nefarious approach uh, to the Middle East, where the stated interests, the rhetoric that accompanies policies, are really just after-the-fact justifications for an approach that is entirely predicated on satisfying uh, lobbying interests, whether from the defense industry, whether from the pro-Israel lobby, and increasingly from the foreign government lobbies themselves, but also just fundamentally housed in a ideology that believes that U.S. primacy, U.S. military domination, U.S. support for abusive governments, it's a good thing. Uh, it's it's no longer uh, being uh, even covered. It's increasingly naked, uh, such that we can have Jake Sullivan justify to the American people support for these dictatorships uh, by very openly saying, well, it's good for Israel. It's good for stability. Uh, it's good for oil prices. Well, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, uh, certainly distinguished himself a week before the Hamas attack on 7 October, this is what he had to say. The Middle East is quieter today than it has been in decades. Quite an observation given subsequent events. So how out of touch is the Biden administration with the realities on the ground? Um, I would say, and I've written on this extensively, deeply, embarrassingly out of touch, which is exactly what the quote that you just read from Jake Sullivan reveals. From the worldview propagated by Brett McGurk, adopted by Jake Sullivan, completely signed off on by uh, Blinken and Biden, uh, the route to stability in the Middle East comes from deals with dictatorships, comes from currying favor with dictatorships, giving them security guarantees, selling them as much weapons as we want, being silent on their gross abuses and war crimes, because that will lead them to, quote unquote, normalize with Israel. And once that happens and they are aligned against Iran, that is the path to stability. Never mind that people, experts, analysts, from the get-go of this cockamamie Abraham Accords strategy, which started under Trump, argued is that this is false. It's based on false assumptions and a bad approach to thinking that alliances between an apartheid government and gross dictatorships is a recipe for stability. It's not. It never will. And yet again, it took the people on the ground uh, in Gaza to suffer with unbelievable horrors and bombardment to really underscore and underline just how bizarrely out of touch Jake Sullivan was. Well, the grand scheme, as you suggest, the Trump-initiated uh, Abraham Accords uh, was also designed to bring a pariah state, Saudi Arabia, into a partner state thanks to multi-billion dollar weapon sales to the Saudi monarchy. So Secretary of State Blinken uh, did acknowledge that we are in a very dangerous situation right now. 
At the same time, he said, we remain focused on our core objectives in the region, both in terms of the conflict in Gaza and broader efforts to build truly durable peace and security. Now, given U.S. bombing attacks on multiple countries in the region, including uh, Somalia and more recently Yemen, what is the basis that Blinken would make such an observation about durable peace and security? If your starting point and his starting point assumes that durable peace and security can emerge from a normalization with Israel and a ganging up, a more sort of solidified regional ganging up on Iran, then you might be on the right path. The problem is the secretary's fundamental assumptions that the path to security in the Middle East is through these normalization agreements uh, has been demonstrably proven to be completely false. If October 7 proved nothing else, if what we've seen happen in the past three months and at what will continue to emerge as this conflict expands, not just to Yemen, um, but to Iraq and to Syria and to Jordan, where three American military forces were killed by a stealthy drone attack, over 30 Americans injured, directly related to this conflict <clears throat> with the Palestinians. Uh, if those are any evidence to go by, then Secretary Blinken needs to update his worldview uh, of the Middle East and really just discard this fantastical notion that stability will come from alliances between an apartheid government uh, and unrepresentative, unelected, unaccountable dictatorships. The reason Saudi Arabia has backed off the normalization agreement is because even they feel the pressure uh, of what such a move would mean right now in the face of a plausibly genocidal campaign uh, in Gaza for Saudi Arabia to make a deal to normalize with Israel. Even Mohammed bin Salman realizes that would be a step too far and it risks destabilizing his own dictatorship in the country. In a landmark decision on January 26th, the International Court of Justice, the UN's highest judicial body based in The Hague, by an overwhelming vote ruled that the South African accusation that Israel in its assault on Gaza is committing genocide, the International Court said, is plausible. The Israeli Prime Minister, in response to the court's decision, said, I'm quoting, Israel's commitment to international law is unwavering. The charge of genocide leveled against Israel is not only false, it's outrageous. Almost certainly the issue will move to the UN Security Council, where it is likely to be vetoed by Washington. Talk about uh, this decision by the International Court of Justice. Uh, your colleague, Rayed Girard, for example, said that it was a watershed moment and a huge defeat for Israel. A couple of observations. First off, on the momentousness of this decision, on the profound significance of this decision, which found that Israel is plausibly committing genocide such that emergency orders were mandatory and necessary. 
first of all, uh, to see a state, Israel, which was created in reaction to the genocide by Germany against Jews uh, during World War II in Germany, uh, the basis for which led to the uh, emergence and ratification of the Genocide Convention. Obviously, there were many other genocides before then, but it took what happened to the Jews to translate it into a genocide convention that's widely supported. For that state to now be on the docket for genocide, first of all, is just shocking and appalling. Um, but the fact that the overwhelming majority of the court supported the observation that Israel is committing, plausibly committing a genocide, and ordered it to stop taking genocidal actions, specifically to stop killing or injuring Palestinians, which are the first items you see mentioned in the Genocide Convention, the first items mentioned uh, in, in the order, um, is you know, a, a, a profound uh, validation uh, and recognition of what people have been describing from on the ground uh, in uh, what's happening uh, in uh, Gaza, and a profound rebuke of the United States, of the United Kingdom, and certainly of Israel, uh, first and foremost, who have vociferously denied uh, that Israel is uh, carrying out acts that amount to genocide, that it's incitement, that it's deliberate intent to kill the Palestinians uh, in Gaza is the basis for the finding and clear uh, to everyone else. Now, Obviously, Israel has shown uh, over the past week that it is completely ignoring this order. When you look at the number of Palestinians killed and injured, the ongoing bombardment of Gaza, the open declarations of intent to displace Palestinians uh, into, if not Egypt, then other African states have been uh, proposed, the vicious attacks involving perfidy, uh, with Israeli soldiers dressing up as civilians, as doctors, to assassinate three people in a West Bank hospital, the discovery of a mass grave uh, with uh, over a dozen apparently Palestinians whose hands were bound and tied, uh, discovered subsequently in a pit, uh, all suggesting that uh, not only is Israel ignoring uh, the order of the court, um, but that it is ignoring the most basic precepts of uh, international humanitarian law and the restrictions of the International Criminal Court. And where, of course, Israel is also on the docket. The two most important international courts in the world, the International Criminal Court and the International Court of Justice, are both examining unbelievable atrocities by Israel. So it's tremendous pressure for them. But it's tremendous pressure for the United States and the United Kingdom in particular because they are faced with a choice of opposing the International Court of Justice, opposing its orders, uh, which, by the way, uh, by any fair reading of the Genocide Convention should include and includes a restriction on aiding and abetting Israel from committing its plausibly genocidal actions. Effectively, the message and the choice the United States is making is that they will undermine, disregard, disobey, and effectively destroy the significance and importance of the International Court of Justice if it means shielding and defending and protecting Israel. Your colleague, uh, Rad Gerard, again says 
The U.S. can't and should not continue its arms transfers to Israel now. This ICJ ruling, I'm quoting, is something that they have to think about very seriously because the United States as a government is implicated in these war crimes and U.S. officials are also implicated, unquote. Absolutely. I mean, the, the international law, uh, particularly the Genocide Convention, is very clear that aiding and abetting a genocidal state and genocidal actions is grounds for culpability and liability under the Genocide Convention. And frankly, it is grounds for culpability uh, in the International Criminal Court to be aiding and abetting violations of the Rome Statute. Uh, given Israel's continued defiance of the International Court of Justice's orders, given the clear language in the International Court of Justice that Israel must stop killing and injuring Palestinians with intent to destroy them, which the court concluded is plausibly underway, it is impossible uh, to uh, read continued U.S. military support for Israel as anything other than aiding and abetting the commission of genocidal acts, plausibly genocidal acts that the court was found. And whether or not the U.S. will actually be brought and dragged to the docket remains to be seen. But really what we're uh, observing is the extent to which the U.S. will go to undermine and destroy these two most important institutions, most important bodies of international accountability in order to shield Israel. It really, there couldn't be a greater test of the U.S.'s stated values in support of the rule of law and accountability and human rights and its efforts to shield Israel from accountability from them. The Biden administration's characterization of the case, South African case against Israel as meritless. It's one thing to say that before the court has rendered uh, its decision and the provisional orders that it recently uh, delivered. I really would like to see if the U.S. continues to take that position, because now it's not about South Africa's case. Uh, it's about uh, a disparaging a decision of the International Criminal Court itself, which obviously found the South African case very meritorious and issued provisional orders uh, 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 as well. Whether or not the, the United States believes it was meritorious or not does not relieve it of its obligation to comply with the court's orders, um, which include uh, ensuring and preventing uh, any further genocidal acts from occurring. And I think, as you were rightly pointing out, the next big test of that will be a Security Council resolution that seeks to enforce uh, the ICJ's resolution but if the U.S. deigns to veto that kind of a resolution, it is a deliberate attack on the ICJ. And good luck getting any other country in the world to ever again think that it must abide by the ICJ's orders. Because if the U.S. thinks it's meritless and uh, refuses to abide by the uh, orders, why should Putin? Why should she? Why should anybody else? It is the end of the court. Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone says, given the years-long siege and blockade almost prison and almost prison-like 
conditions Palestinians were facing that October 7th was inevitable. For years, I and countless other experts and commentators on the Middle East uh, have uh, uh, insisted that the ongoing siege and blockade uh, of Gaza is an unsustainable situation that in addition to creating massive suffering of the Gazan population is creating a lot of resentment and anger uh, and rage uh, as uh, uh, those who are effectively imprisoned uh, uh, in the territory of Gaza in a heinous over decade-long act of collective punishment will no doubt rattle their cages and come out strongly against this. This, of course, is not the most recent or only incident, rather, of conflict between Israel and armed groups in Gaza since the imposition of the blockade and siege, which immediately followed the only fair and free elections they had in that territory in 2006. The punishment for having a fair and free election that chose Hamas politicians to represent them was a U.S.-backed coup attempt uh, on the ground in Gaza, which failed. And since then, there have been relentless wars and bombardments in addition to the blockade against the Gazan people since 2006. So, of course, uh, October 7 uh, and uh, uh, many more uh, acts of resistance and rebellion and sadly, yes, uh, heinous crimes and abuses such as the targeting of civilians uh, on October 7 by armed groups. I believe we will continue to see these things uh, so long as the collective imprisonment at now uh, a plausible genocide, deliberate starvation, forced displacement of the people of Gaza continues. Uh, I really want every single person who's thinking about what should be happening uh, on the ground in Gaza, in Israel, across Palestine to ask themselves is what would they do uh, if they were living in Rafah city uh, since 2006 under a total siege and blockade? What would be the course of action they would take? How should they protect their rights and defend their rights. I want to remind folks uh, that when Palestinians rose up to protest in what was called the Great March of Resistance uh, against uh, uh, ongoing Israeli siege and blockade, going up to the border uh, with Israel, on the fence with Israel, Israeli forces deliberately shot and killed hundreds of protesters. Israeli snipers deliberately targeted uh, hundreds of Palestinian protesters in the spine and in the knee uh, to handicap them for life, to punish them for daring to peacefully protest uh, the ongoing occupation and siege. People are running out of options. And, and when you corner people, you're going to expect to see some very, very ugly reactions. Arabs and few non-Arabs like Armenians uh, make up about 20% of Israel's population. What's their situation like, particularly since October 7th? It's often pointed out quite correctly that Palestinian Israelis have representatives in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. Well, with respect to non-Jewish citizens of Israel, there is definitely a two-class system of citizenship where Jewish Israelis citizens have advantages and privileges 
that are prohibited to non-Jewish Israeli citizens, effectively creating this uh, dual tier of citizenship. And for example, while Palestinians can vote in Israel, they are deliberately sequestered into certain parts of the country. They are denied the opportunity to live anywhere in the country that they want. Um, They are, of course, prohibited from military service, uh, to give one example. And they do not have the same family reunification rights as uh, Israelis do. So a Jew from anywhere in the world uh, can come to Israel and automatically get citizenship. Whereas a Palestinian living a few miles away in the West Bank, even if she marries an Israeli citizen, uh, can uh, never be allowed to get citizenship, cannot uh, be reunited with her family. In fact, the Israeli citizen spouse, obviously typically an Arab, um, would have to move elsewhere to live with their spouse. So there's a variety of ways where we see legally mandated discrimination, but as well as policies uh, and practices of discrimination that the government either promotes or doesn't prohibit. Seeds of hatred and desire are being sown uh, in Gaza, in the West Bank, and East Jerusalem. As the poet W.H. Auden wrote, I and the public know what all school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Uh, I I mean, I have no doubt Auden's quote is true. Um, I would imagine uh, that certainly the goal of any state should be uh, to abide by the human rights uh, of, of the people under their control, under their sovereignty, and that failing to do that Uh, will be the first source of disorder, disharmony, uh, chaos, uh, uh, and resistance. Um, I really don't like to think of issues in terms of evil and good, um, which tend to be subjective uh, or open to various interpretations. I much more like to focus on the concrete black letter obligations that every state has to respect the human rights of the people uh, it rules over. That is the test uh, for whether a government is succeeding or failing. That is the test of whether a government should be held accountable. But certainly a government that is not held accountable for the abuses of the rights of the people under its control will inevitably, relentlessly, ceaselessly face resistance, counter-resistance. If you can't provide accountability by legal means, people will seek other means to demand accountability. Um, And the reason we want governments to abide by the law and legal means is because we don't want people resorting to violence uh, to resolve their disputes, uh, to seek justice for their grievances. You're listening to Sarah Lee Whitson on Gaza, international law, and the Biden presidency. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. What are your views on Hamas? 
The most obvious uh, uh, observation from a human rights perspective is in no uncertain terms for people who may be uncertain about it, I will be very certain, that the attack on October 7, in particular the attack on civilians and the large number of civilian casualties in Hamas's attack, was and is not just a gross abuse of human rights, but a war crime in every sort of clear and obvious sense uh, of that word. And mind you, the ICC's ongoing investigation and prosecution of the situation in Palestine will include a review not only of Israeli crimes, but also of Hamas's crimes. Most recently, I think uh, Hamas announced that it would cooperate with the International Criminal Court, including with respect to the October 7 assault, if Israel stops uh, bombarding Gaza and a, a ceasefire is implemented. Uh, from a political perspective, um, I would say that the uh, Hamas October 7 attack was and has been so far a major game changer, a major disruptor of what seemed before October 7, an unstoppable, uh, unresistable ganging up against the Palestinian people and against the Palestinian rights, primarily represented by the efforts of the United States to expand the Abraham Accords, to basically expand apartheid Israel's legitimation uh, by major Arab states, with the main prize, of course, being Saudi Arabia. And basically, before October 7, it was proof of concept of what the Israelis have been saying, and even some members of the Biden administration have been saying, that the Palestinian issue isn't really a priority for the rest of the Arab world anymore, that really um, we can push for normalization without resolving the Palestinian issue, and that basically we can just ignore what happens to the occupied Palestinian territories. Hamas on October 7 exploded the pending Saudi normalization deal, uh, effectively exploded a bilateral security agreement that the United States was going to give to Saudi Arabia. It exploded whatever fantastic feelings of stability that Jake Sullivan and McGurk had, that we were in a quiet period. And it has expanded uh, the Palestinian issue and the Palestinian conflict to at least five countries in the rest of the region, uh, where, for example, the Houthis in Yemen have effectively joined the war effort and joined the Hamas resistance effort by saying they will stop ships bound to Israel. Really a, a form of sanctions. The United States can't be the only country in the world to impose sanctions on other states unilaterally without UN Security Council authorization. Um, I believe there are over 35 countries that the US sanctions the vast majority without authorization. And so to see that war expand uh, as it has, to see the Biden, the United States' plans, the Israel's plans completely disrupted, uh, to see the entire region on alert, uh, to now saying, well, we really do need a two-state solution and we really do need a pathway and maybe we should have the PA come in and govern. But what are we going to do? All of a sudden, focused uh, on the situation in Gaza and Palestine. I am beyond saddened. I am horrified. I am gutted 
that it took 25,000 Palestinian lives, over 10,000 children to force the international community to deal with the situation in Gaza and stop trying to brush two and a half million people under the rug, under the Israeli siege, the ongoing, continued, without resolution. The Palestinian people said no. Uh, and now the whole world is focused on a new conversation. So in the smallest of, of silver linings here, I would say the fact that there is now a reconsideration of what we need to do to end the occupation and apartheid and could be potentially an important step forward. At least it opens up the possibility of that. There are constant pronouncements that the Biden administration seeks no regional war. But Nisreen Malik in The Guardian says, I'm quoting, the truth is that war is already here. It has now spilled into Lebanon, Yemen, Iran, the Red Sea, and the Arabian Sea, unquote. I would add Iraq and Syria and Jordan to that list. Uh, as I mentioned, the recent attack, believably from Iraq or, or Syria, into the U.S. military base, killing three servicemen uh, and injuring 30. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. A regional war is here. Um, and in some way, unfortunately, this plays into the hands uh, of the Boltons and the Mike Pences and others uh, who are today, I believe, and even in CNN, the F F Foundation for Defense of Democracies, who want to use October 7, not as an opportunity to resolve what needs to be resolved, which is Israeli apartheid and occupation, uh, but to distract from that by op opening a new front, a new war with Iran uh, and all of the armed groups that it uh, charges being associated with Iran, like Hezbollah, like the Houthis in Yemen. So kind of a grand anti-Shia, anti-Iran war to deal with the responses to October 7, as opposed to dealing with the problem that we should be dealing with post-October 7, and that is the problem of Israeli occupation and apartheid. Those are the problems we have to solve for. And speaking of apartheid, Beth Salem, which is an Israeli human rights organization, Amnesty International, and Human Rights Watch have all determined that Israel is practicing apartheid. That's right. And the first organization to reach that legal conclusion in, in the way of other human rights organizations was Al-Haq, a West Bank-based Palestinian organization that was subsequently designated as a terrorist organization by Israel. And its office is shuttered and its, uh, uh, I believe its computers even confiscated. In fact, the U.S. recently denied a visa to the executive director of Al-Haq, Shawan Jabarin, who's been to the U.S. on numerous occasions and, you know, globally lauded human rights activists, just to see, show you how in sync U.S. security tends to be with Israeli uh, accusations. The current Israeli government is routinely called the most right-wing in its history. Talk about what was happening in Israel before uh, October 7th uh, in terms of the massive protests and demonstrations challenging 
the government's plans to emasculate uh, and eviscerate the independent uh, judiciary or relatively independent judiciary that uh, Israel uh, had. Uh, I should say no mention in these demonstrations was ever made about occupation and dispossession of the Palestinians. It was strictly focused on this issue of the judiciary. Um, so basically, as you were noting, Israel had its longest record of uh, uh, protests against the government, longest and biggest protests that really lasted for months uh, against the uh, Netanyahu and his allies' efforts uh, to pass a new law that would basically subject Supreme Court decisions uh, to parliamentary review uh, and basically kneecap the independence of the judiciary uh, uh, effectively. I mean, there are a variety of reasons, some domestic, some having to do with Netanyahu's own prosecution uh, underway for corruption and other crimes, uh, um, but as well as uh, a little bleeps of findings from the Israeli Supreme Court that would limit their ability to the government's ability to uh, demolish some uh, housing, uh, uh, illegally confiscated housing in the West Bank and so on. Um, so these protests were all underway and then October 7 happens. And of course, massive swing of unity towards the government in the immediate shock of October 7, and largely seeing a suspension of those protests about those domestic or understood to be domestic issues. Uh, the only protesters really emerging are hostage family protests demanding that the government's not doing enough to uh, free the hostages, endangering the hostages, killing hostages, uh, as we now know has occurred. But now, again, there is a resumption of some of the domestic protest uh, in the country because the government has passed additional legislation to circumscribe society, to expand censorship, to punish Israelis who have uh, questioned the government's military response in Gaza. But at the same time, you've seen a dramatic uh, increase you know, really shocking incursions by the Israeli military, not just the Israeli military, but the Israeli security forces that have police control over the territories, which under the new uh, Israeli government was moved out of the IDF and into the hands of one of the most extremist uh, ministers. We have seen the ministers giving out weapons uh, to Israeli settlers, and accordingly, I think we need to update our terminology to call these armed settlers paramilitary groups. That's what they are. Between the rampages of these paramilitary groups, regular IDF incursions, it's definitely a major expansion of a very violent and militaristic approach. And, you know, that's coupled with increasingly unapologetic, naked pronouncements that the Israeli government does not want a two-state solution. That's actually the truth. Just the way Trump would occasionally utter some truths, however shocking and heinous when talking about U.S. policy in the Middle East, you know, this is just the Israeli government being a lot more transparent and naked of something that's been true all the time. They don't want a two-state solution. 
they do want to reoccupy Gaza. They do want to annex Area C in the West Bank. They do want to drive Palestinians out of Gaza, but also out of the West Bank and certain parts of the West Bank. So all of this is much more blatant and naked. And that's why you're seeing many American Jewish groups increasingly in a panic um, because this goes so far from any conception of an Israeli government that they could legitimately support. So the divisions in Israeli society, which I think were masked over by the war in Gaza over the past three months, are much worse in the American Jewish community. That is where we are seeing the greatest fissures, because uh, from the statistics that we've seen, the vast majority of American Jews believe Israel is an apartheid state, uh, want a ceasefire, uh, oppose the Netanyahu government and all its extremist policies domestically and with respect to the territories, while the leadership of these Israeli organ uh, of these pro-Israel organizations in the U.S continue to unconditionally back, support, protect, and defend the Israeli government and seek to spend over $100 million to defeat uh, Democratic candidates who've been critical of Israel. So this is translating very directly here on the ground into what is increasingly a very elite-driven, undemocratic, unrepresentative, big-money move uh, to go against what the majority of American Jews want, the majority of Democrats want. Um, and so it's really a test of our own democracy. Jewish Voice for Peace says, quote, the unchecked military funding, diplomatic cover, and billions of dollars of private money flowing from the U.S. enables and empowers Israel's apartheid regime. Those who continue calling for ironclad U.S. support for the Israeli military are only paving the path to more violence, unquote. It's a perfectly accurate statement, uh, primarily focusing on what my organization focuses on, which is our government's actions and responsibilities. You know, we here in the U.S., we can't necessarily control what Israel does or doesn't do. Uh, and I'm not convinced that ending U.S. military aid to Israel will suddenly create reform or reformist views in these messianic, selfish, self-driven political leaders in Israel. But I do know that I don't want my government to be aiding and abetting the illegal occupation, apartheid, and plausibly genocidal actions in Gaza. I don't want my country to be legally liable for this. I don't want my country to have this moral stain on its own record. I don't want my taxpayer dollars to go to this regime. And all we're waiting for now is for our own elected officials to show some connection to, some responsiveness to what the majority of their own constituents want, which is an end to this blind, disastrous, harmful support for Israel. You mentioned paramilitaries. These are euphemistically called settlers. Perhaps they should be called colonizers, and the houses that they're living in are colonies. That would give people here a better sense of what's actually going on in this in a settler colonial uh, movement. You also use the term IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. 
Now, defense is a curious term as well. Historically, aggressors who attack say they're responding in self-defense. Hitler in 1939 said, Poland is attacking us. We have to defend ourselves. Lyndon Johnson was saying the same thing about Vietnam and Bush in Iraq. And so it goes on and on. The use of language to manipulate the discourse so people don't understand what's going on. We obviously have seen an ongoing effort to fight the language of law, to fight, for example, the description of the occupied Palestinian territories as the occupied Palestinian stories, continued efforts to recharacterize them, but more importantly, force the media to mention them as so-called disputed territories. And I think that manipulation is clear. I, I don't know how much of a difference it makes in people's minds to use the term settler versus colonialist. Um, you know, I think the, the, the term colony probably is familiar to most Americans as the American colonies. I don't know how much history and understanding of colonization and decolonization the majority of Americans have at this moment in time. But I think Americans certainly understand the concept of apartheid and war crimes and genocide. You know, that is the record that the Biden administration is going to have to defend uh, and is going to fail in defending. So the stakes of this continued support for Israel, the stakes of continuing to whitewash its crimes, Biden risks paying a very high price for this. And the Democratic Party risks paying a very high price for this because Muslim Americans, Arab Americans, progressive Americans are increasingly making clear every single day that they will not vote for Biden. And if people are afraid that Trump will win as a result, then that's something the Democratic Party should take into consideration. And maybe they should consider running a candidate who is not as divisive, who is not now as hated as whom people are calling Genocide Joe. So the stakes of how the U.S. responds in this moment of time cannot be higher. What the Biden administration has to decide is whether it will put the interests of the United States, including its own chances to win the election this year, ahead of the interests of the apartheid Israeli government. And if they can't even prioritize their secure election ahead of protecting apartheid Israel, then that, I think, really signals the depth of the problem we have, the extent to which our own elected officials undermine our own country's interests, their own individual interests, rather than allow the criticism of Israel, rather than hold Israel accountable. It's interesting that uh, liberal Democrat Nancy Pelosi said that uh, those who criticize uh, Israel are Putin stooges, and uh, she's called for an FBI investigation of those who criticize Israel. How embarrassing, how despicable for Representative Pelosi to so disparage her own constituents as not just Russian, but also Chinese spies, rather than grapple with the reality that her unconditional support and protection and defense of Israel is opposed 
by her own constituents. She would rather take a Trumpian approach to calling for investigations, harassment effectively, uh, accusing Americans as being traitors, which is punishable as a crime in the United States, rather than grapple with the reality that Americans don't support what Israel is doing. Americans don't support what the United States government is doing in support of Israel. Uh, and that, you know, is is really, again, just a microcosm of what we see writ large in the Biden administration, uh, as we were talking about ahead of the elections to come. The Israeli prime minister told the BBC, don't accuse us of war crimes. We are the most moral army in the world. That's a direct quote. How have the actions in Gaza of Israeli military forces lived up to the prime minister's assertion? I'm thinking of reports, photos, videos, and testimonies of Palestinians who were detained by Israel, who were blindfolded, stripped to their underwear, and held in what the UN says are horrible conditions. The Times, to its credit, has reported on this, a front page story. You know, I don't really know how much of the world takes Netanyahu seriously. Uh, I would guess that the vast majority of those who follow the news in Israel-Palestine understand not only that Netanyahu has been a decades-long architect of uh, military incursions, war crimes, land theft, various violations of the uh, Rome statute, uh, not just since October 7, but for decades. Uh, to hear him talk about a moral army in the world, I mean, it's just a meme now. I don't think anyone takes that seriously, honestly. You know, basically, if if he wants to claim that a moral army of the world has now been found of committing plausibly genocidal actions, committing a plausible genocide in Gaza, um, then you can decide whose word you want to take for it. You know, Bibi Netanyahu's or the international criminal courts. You must know that term PEP, progressive except Palestine. Is that still holding water? Oh, I mean, I think it definitely still holds water. And uh, unfortunately, it has been a very rough period and rough test uh, for American progressives or even moderates and liberals who otherwise loved to champion the rights of Ukraine and Ukrainians against uh, foreign invasion, occupation and war crimes who never run out of tears for people in, in Xinjiang subject to Chinese oppression, uh, still want to talk about, you know, and rightly so, the horrible dictatorship in Syria, just can't find a word to describe Israel's conduct. And it has become an impossibility in the face of what we're now seeing live on camera 24-7 since October 7, to maintain that, uh, to justify that. And you've seen a lot of people, at least on social media, saying, I used to be a supporter of Israel. Uh, I can no longer maintain that as a progressive, uh, as, uh, as even a moderate. And I think that there has been a tremendous change in the discourse in the United States uh, uh, so that it has become much more mainstream uh, to criticize Israel's gross conduct uh, in Gaza.
Um, so the good news is that that progressive against Palestine space is crumbling. The mainstream of Americans are shifting to support Palestinian rights, and that increasingly those who insist on defending uh, Israeli crimes, Israeli abuses, are really extreme anomalies who I don't think really can qualify as progressives. I would say that some progressives are still trying to hide what they say, and I think that the civil society organizations that have spoken out on other atrocities uh, who had very little or nothing to say on Palestine, they should be called out. They should be pushed because they're feeling the pressure. There's some talk, particularly in Europe, of a two-state solution. Phyllis Bennis of the Institute for Policy Studies told me in no uncertain terms, there's no longer a possibility of a two-state solution, she said. There's not going to be a two-state solution because there's no land left for a viable, contiguous Palestinian state. What are your views on this issue? My views are twofold. Uh, first of all, uh, the two-state solution as configured by the Oslo Accords is dead. It was doomed and destined for deliberate failure uh, by Israel. The Israeli government has never been interested in a two-state solution and certainly is not interested in it now. Um, and so uh, uh, I think to that end, as currently envisioned a two-state solution along the lines of 1967 uh, armistice lines, uh, that is uh, the so-called green line. That's dead. It's over. It's not happening. And any yang-yang you hear uh, bandied about now by the Biden administration of securing Saudi normalization in exchange for so-called pathways uh, to a resolution of the conflict, pathways to Palestinian statehood, uh, people should be on notice that that is a total hoax. They're empty words. The Israelis love to commit to pathways to nowhere that don't obligate them to do anything, that don't hold any kind of accountability mechanisms uh, when the pathways remain stalled in perpetuity, just like Oslo. So please don't fall for it. It's nothing but a ruse. However, the process by which I do believe there can be a transition of Israel from its current status as an apartheid occupying genocidal state to a rights respecting state uh, is within reach. Uh, I think the way for us to get there uh, is to have a transitional government, a caretaker government that will end apartheid and occupation and create the conditions on the ground that will allow the people from the river to the sea to democratically decide how they want to organize themselves, whether it's one state, two states, three states, whatever. The answer to that question can't come from an unelected block of Palestinians, aka the Palestinian Authority, negotiating, quote-unquote, on behalf of Palestinians, uh, any more than Netanyahu can legitimately uh, speak uh, as a representative of all uh, uh, Israeli Jews, given the divisions of his own society. The citizens, the people, should decide democratically how they want to organize their governance. The rights of the people have to come first, the decision on governance is theirs to make after. Thanks very much for your time. You're very welcome.
You were just listening to Sarah Lee Whitson on Gaza, international law, and the Biden presidency. I talked with her on February 1st. Sarah Lee Whitson is executive director of DAWN, Democracy for the Arab World Now. This program is produced by Alternative Radio. We're an independent nonprofit in our 38th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Chris Hedges, Medea Benjamin, Max Blumenthal, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Sarah Lee Whitson on Gaza International Law and the Biden Presidency, and for the classic Noam Chomsky book, Propaganda and the Public Mind. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ichi is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to CGSW's airing of Alternative Radio. For a full listing of episodes, head to the podcast tab on cgsw.com or search up Alternative Radio on the CGSW app. Hello, my name is Joel, and today I would like to talk to you about ways you can get involved with donating blood for Canadian Blood Services. Canadian Blood Services is a non-profit organization that is responsible for managing and coordinating the blood supply in Canada. It collects blood, plasma, and platelets from donors across the country and ensures that these products are safe and available for patients in need. The most direct and impactful way to get involved is by donating blood. You can visit a local blood donor clinic and schedule an appointment to donate. The process is safe and your contribution can save lives. The main location you can donate at in Calgary is at Eau Claire, location at 200 Barclay Parade Southwest. I have been donating blood for nearly nine years, and during this time, my blood donations have helped 158 people with over 50 donations. There will be a new location opening at 10 West Plaza at 9th Avenue South. Some criteria for donating blood is that you must be at least 17 years old, bring a valid government-issued photo identification, such as a driver's license or passport, and be in good general health on the day of donation. You can also head over to blood.ca 
and take an eligible quiz if you are still unsure if you meet the requirements. The actual blood donation process takes approximately 10 to 15 minutes. The donor's arm is cleaned and a sterile needle is inserted to extract blood into the collection bag. The process is generally painless and is supervised by trained staff. Overall, donating blood with Canadian Blood Service